0: providing you with unique insights, unparalleled data, and real-time market analyses.
1: It is a real pleasure to have uh, Andy Florence join me today for the Walker Wednesday webcast. I've been looking forward to having Andy on for quite some time and I'm I know the two of us will have a fun and spirited conversation about the commercial real estate markets and what Andy and CoStar are seeing today. Before I turn to Andy, To discuss the markets and co-star, I invited John Rice, a dear friend of mine, one of my oldest friends in the world, also a Walker & Dunlop director. John also sits on the board of trustees of Yale University and has a fantastic organization called Management Leadership for Tomorrow, which Walker & Dunlop has been a big supporter of over many years, to talk about the crisis in America today and to discuss for a moment how corporate America and our country is dealing with the civil unrest as the result of what took place in Minnesota last week. I thought that having John on, just to give some perspective, would be very helpful to those of you who have joined us today to focus not only on the real estate markets, but the world we live in today. So, Johnny, first of all, welcome and thank you for joining us. I think that I and Andy and I had a call yesterday and other leaders in the business world are right now trying to figure out how to discuss what's going on in our country and how to be not only to create a dialogue, but to also lead at these times. And so can you give us some thoughts, some suggestions? I know you've been in touch with many, many CEOs over the past several days as it relates to these issues And so any of your perspective and ideas would be extremely helpful to all of us at this time.
0: Oh, thanks, Willie. I appreciate you having me on at a very important inflection point in our country and at a time where there's a lot of strife going on on all fronts. And I'm somebody who likes to focus on, you know, what do we do? How can we move forward? And I want to share a few, just a few thoughts that are reflective of where we are in our current state. So three key points that I'd like to encourage folks to to focus on with respect to taking action. What can you do as owners and operators as CEOs as executives going forward in your organizations and in your communities? The first is essentially I want to challenge everyone to understand the underlying problems, you know, why we are where we are, why people are protesting across the country. Number two, I want to encourage folks to com- you know, to communicate with courage and not perfection. And number 3, I want to encourage folks to take those of you who are compelled to take some action and do something to move the needle, take a rigorous approach to move the needle in your world. don't settle for random acts of diversity. So if I could double click on on all three of those, the first ones sort of understanding the underlying problems and it's important to understand that like this is not just about the systemic racism and how we are policing black people and people of color in our country, how we prosecute those who are committing the crimes in the justice system. It's also the narrative in our minds that exists that enables police to think that they can get away with what they did. And even to our citizens, what you saw last week, the narrative that enables a liberal white investment professional in New York to think that she can get away with calling the police on a black man who's asking her to put her dog on a leash so he can continue birdwatching safely and it's also you have to understand that it's the exhaustion underlying the inequities with respect to economic mobility wealth inequality healthcare disparities during a pandemic and housing you know they're just getting worse and not better so if we first got to understand you know, that this is you know don't focus too much on the symptoms focus on the underlying problems understand them and then when i say communicate with courage not perfection we're at an inflection point i think in 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 our history and people in your organizations and your external stakeholders, they will remember not just what you said, but what you did not say. And folks don't expect you to have all the answers, but I think they do expect you to understand the problem, the nuance of, nuances of it, as I talked about. And then then they expect you to, and they want to know what you stand for, and they want to know what you stand against. So in communicating with courage, I think will not only demonstrate to people of color that you get it, but it'll also demonstrate to your white colleagues, peers, externally and internally, it'll give them more confidence to communicate and to listen. And I think that will be important to move the needle on the underlying issues that we're facing. And then when I talk about like sort of take a rigorous approach to moving the needle, don't settle for random acts of diversity as you respond and, and step up as leaders. I think if you do feel compelled to do something, go back to the basic underpinnings of strategy and execution That you built your businesses on. And when we think about those underpinnings, what do we do? We start by defining the problem or opportunity at hand. We define what success looks like in three to five years quantitatively and qualitatively. And based on that vision of success and those goals, what do you do? You prioritize the levers to invest in that will get you there. And then you define sort of those interim metrics that relate to progress. You define an organizational approach that has the appropriate accountabilities. But too often, when it comes to moving the needle in this space on things that relate to addressing diversity and racism and the challenges that we're facing today, too often in the vast majority of even the best organizations, and we work with over you know, 120 of the top organizations in Rome, we see this time and time again, too often what happens? We fail to deeply understand the underlying drivers of the problem. You know, we think it's a pipeline problem or there's others. You know, we, we don't really dig de- deeper. And then because discussions on goals and what success look like when it comes to race and gender can be uncomfortable enough and charged, what do we do? We don't really define success. And when you don't define success, you don't define, it's really hard to prioritize the levers that will get you there. And it's hard to determine the interim metrics. And then you can't hold anybody accountable. So what you end up with is a strategy that's defined by let's do better than last year, which everyone on this call knows would never be acceptable in any other part of your business. And that's what leads to random acts of diversity, which often look good, which make you feel good, but actually will find us in the same place in a few years as we are today. And that is the core issue that's at the core of our dialogue, at the core of what you're seeing in the streets, the core of what you're seeing on TV, which is we cannot accept the lack of progress over the, you know, the centuries of, of our country. We cannot hold ourselves in the same situation, and find ourselves three years from now, two years from now, five years from now, talking about the same things and not having made progress. So I encourage you all, as you're stepping up and, and thinking about what to do, apply those, that basic rigor, that comprehensive approach that's made you successful, apply it to the, the world to move the needle on these issues, and just don't settle with being in the same place in a few years as we are today, because that's what's gotten us into this issue, just into where we are today with the unrest that we're seeing in our country, Will. Really.
1: Thank you, Johnny. I'm going to just quickly run through a couple of things that we've done at W&D, and then I'm going to thank you for joining us and for giving those thoughts. But I I think your comments as it relates to we'll do better next year is clearly, I watched Andy when you said that, and Andy nodded his head saying that's exactly right. Having someone like John Rice on the Walker and DeLont board, beyond all of his input and insight, has helped drive us on these issues as a company. And I would just point out that putting numbers, what Howard Smith, my partner at Walker and Dunlop says, what isn't measured isn't done. And so 37.5% of our board at Walker and Dunlop is women and minorities, and we're currently doing a targeted search now for a woman or another minority director. It could end up being both. We just restructured our senior management team at Walker and Dunlop, and we went from 23% women and minorities in senior management to 31% by promoting a number of people into the senior ranks. We need to get that number to 50. We've established goals in our ESG program to have 35% of our senior management be women. It's currently 21%. 20% be minorities. It's currently 10%. And I think the most important one where we have the most work to do is that 15% of our top wage earners should be women and minorities, which currently are at 9% for women and 4% for minorities. And we've established a goal of having all that done by 2025. That's a lot of work to be done over the next five years. But the only way we get there is by investing in programs such as Management Leadership for Tomorrow that John runs, Year Up, which many of you have heard about, Project Destined, as well as we've been a longtime investor in the Future Housing Leaders program in partnership with Fannie Mae. And we'll continue to do all that. We've done targeted recruiting from historically Black colleges, such as Howard University and Morehouse College as well as going and targeting minority, great minority talent at general universities across the country. We still need to do more. And just as an aside on all this stuff, even for a company like us that has been quite focused on these issues for quite some time, many thanks to having people like John Rice on our board. I asked our team about our summer interns for this summer, and they sent me just yesterday a note, and they said we've got 8% Asian-Americans, 8% African-Americans, and 12% Latino Americans in our summer intern program. So that's 28% minority, which is pretty good. But then all of a sudden I said, where are we on male, female? And we're 88% male and only 12% female. We totally missed the ball. And so the reason that, you know, I hadn't thought about it as far as our summer intern program, but unless you track it, unless you focus on it, unless you set clear objectives, you'll end up with a summer intern program at Walker Numop that is quite diverse, but not from a gender standpoint. And so the final thing I would say on this topic, as it relates to how all of this plays into business and John's comment of, you know, sort of, this is a marathon, we all need to do things over time. If you think about the shooting of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri in 2014, first of all, last night, some of you may have seen Ferguson elected its first African-American mayor, which is fantastic. But beyond that, we only had two defaults in the Walker and loan portfolio over the last 12 months, two. And they happened to both be at the University of Missouri. And the reason that we had two loan defaults on student housing properties at the University of Missouri is directly tied back to the Ferguson riots in 2014. Because enrollment numbers at the University of Missouri started to fall in 2015 and 2016. The Board of Governors of the University of Missouri changed their on-campus and off-campus housing policy to require more students to live in the dorms. And that put downward pressure on off-campus housing because they didn't have the enrollment numbers. And we have two owners of student housing properties off campus at Mizzou who both defaulted on their loans over the last 12 months, six years after the riots took place in Ferguson. But there are long-term implications to all of this if we don't address it much beyond the social unrest that's going on in the United States of America today. Johnny, anything you want to say before I say thank you for joining us this morning and turn to Andy?
0: No, well, I, I appreciate you having on. I appreciate your, your teeing up the dialogue. These are, I just want to encourage everybody to to think about how you can be on the right side of history. And this is the time to step up and in your own world and focus on what's most important. Make sure that people know where you stand and then execute and deliver. This is not the time to say things and not follow up and I'm glad that we're having this dialogue and tying it to the work that we're d- doing at Walker and Dunlop and most excited to actually, to, to hear what
1: Andy has to say as well.
2: You love stats, John.
1: <laughs> <laughs> he does. He's a fantastic set. So Johnny, as I said, if you could just peel off and then dial back in through the regular one, then the screen will just go to two of Andy and me, but thank you very much for joining us this morning. I greatly appreciate it. Thanks. Appreciate it. Mark. Thank you. Andy, welcome. Uh, Thank you. It's to have you on. Good to be here. There's so many different places for the two of us to start. I want to back way up. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess I'll start with this. You grew up as a kid who was super talented. You went to Princeton. You're at Princeton and you're in your honors physics class. And you've got a lab mate in your honors physics (laughs) class at Princeton, By the name of Jeff Bezos. Did the two of you sit around and say, we're both going to go build two of the most innovative tech firms on the face of the planet, and I'll see you 30 years from now back at the reunion after we've both written really big checks?
2: It was uh, much simpler. It was, can we scrape enough money together for a beer and some pizza tonight? But yeah, things turned out in an interesting way. At reunions, I was walking down a pathway, and Jeff, who's quite buff now runs up and picks me up and throws me in the air. And my kids just sort of scratch their head and they're like the richest man in the world, just threw our father up in the air, like a baby. <laughs> but yeah, it was an interesting time. He's a good guy. He, he could have paid, paid for the character. medical. He could have paid for the medical yeah. the hospital visit
1: <laughs> had you fallen on the ground. So a little supplemental. So Andy, you, you get out of, you get out of Princeton and you decide to, start this company called Realty Information Group. What was the genesis? What was it about commercial real estate? Your, your father is an architect by training. You'd you looked at the built environment in your entire life, but what was it about data and the real estate environment that made you want to start Realty Information Group way back when?
2: And I was inspired by the potential of digital transformation. So when I was coming out of college, it was the first era of democratization of computing power. So you went from mainframes to actually being able to put a computer on your desk. And oddly enough, I wasn't sure if I was going to get into real estate directly or I was fascinated with digitizing real estate and the potential for that. So there's so many cool things you could do that would unlock value or let people see real estate in a way that no one had seen before. I kept coming back to that, and at Princeton, I was washing dishes to make money on the side, and then I got some job, a couple of gigs writing just kind of cash flow analysis for a couple of Washington developers on one of the few PCs around, and it paid ten times what the dishwashing paid, and was a lot more enjoyable because so I was familiar with all that. The irony was in 1986, 87. I almost got into commercial real estate, put a contract in on a burnt out five unit multifamily property at 17th and Massachusetts Avenue. It had been burnt out in the riots of 1968 and as late as 1986, it still had not recovered. It was still missing doors, missing a roof. And when I started studying the heck out of what would the economics of renovating this property be and. I started collecting rents on nearby properties. I started surveying other properties. I went down to the recorder of deeds. I started looking at what other properties were selling for. I spent months studying and building a model for this property. And while I was building the most comprehensive database on a multifamily in Washington, D.C., my option to acquire the property accidentally expired. And I said, well, I love the data. So that was it. It was sort of an accidental attempt to get into commercial real estate, then I found I like the digital side more. Too long an answer.
1: No, it's not too long an answer. So you changed the name from Realty Information Group to CoStar. Why'd you do that? Well, well um, Where did CoStar come from? I mean, Realty Information Group, RIG, I don't know, we could be looking at an RIG stock price today rather than CoStar. What's CoStar?
2: We were naming our software for the first time. And an important part of our business is working in partnership with and in collaboration with all of the different segments, of the industry, brokers, owners, and the like. So we wanted to stress that we were not trying to play a starring role in the commercial estate transaction, but we were trying to play a supporting role in the commercial estate transaction. So it was co-starring in the commercial estate process. Specifically, It stood for Commercial Office Space Tracking, Analysis, and Reporting, and it cost me one case of Budweiser beer. I got a bunch of friends over, got some hot dogs in the grill, and we sat around trying to come up with anagrams, all kinds of things, and after a case of Budweiser, it was CoStar. Now, years go by, I think that cost us $12.50 to get the name CoStar in beer. Years go by... And we hire one of the best of the in the field, Interbrand. And we spend one point four million dollars to change the typeface of CoStar. So And you put know, the
1: star next to it, I'm sure. The little star yeah, this, on the yeah, logo. Star exactly.
2: next to CoStar.
1: <laughs> An expensive star. Hey, on that, talking about CoSTars. I got a question before from our mutual friend, Brian Coulter at JBG, who asked whether Jeff Goldblum is as eccentric as he seems. Is he you? I mean, why him is your as the face of co-star and is he as eccentric as we all would think he is from afar?
2: Yes. Yeah, so the why Jeff Goldblum is you look at the multifamily industry, it's one of the single biggest consumer segments, $750 billion spending a year, consumer spending on where someone's going to rent a place, 150 million people living there. It dwarfs beer. It dwarfs cars. And yet there was no consumer branding. So we decided to go all in and we've spent half a billion to three quarters of a billion dollars in consumer branding to drive multifamily apartment living as a lifestyle. When we did focus groups, the number one issue with renters was trust. Like At that time, when we really started investing in com. Craigslist was a leading source of information, and it came with fear. It came with crime. It came with fraud. And so people, we were looking for a spokesperson that conveyed trust. And if you think about Jurassic Park, you know, must go faster. You know, life will have a way. He was always the person warning people. And he tested very high for trust. Now, I'll tell you, Jeff is exactly what you see on the screen or what you see on his show or what you see in our ads. That's Jeff 24-7. He is brilliant. And he is wired differently than the rest of us. And you can put a script in front of him. He'll glance at it once and then he'll have it memorized. He works really hard, but he can memorize anything nearly instantly. And he's constantly just a show like to sit there and watch him between filming clips is like watching your own you know, personal movie. He's a he's a lot of fun. He's a great guy. And he really loves the apartments gig. I mean, he really it's 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 his passion. Now he sent me a picture the other day of he was driving through Santa Monica and one of our apartments dot com cars drove by him and he chased the car down <laughs> and he took a picture of it and he said, look, I found one of the cars. He, he loves the gig.
1: I want to rewind the tape a little bit because when you went public in 1998 at $9 a share and raised $22.5 million to give people a sense of where CoStar is today. So 1998, 9 bucks a share, and they raised $22.5 million. Today, it's $666 a share with a market cap of $26.2 billion. So that's over 1,000x from the $22.5 million back in 1998. What's been the biggest
2: driver of that success, Andy? Well, you know, I think I would say, first of all, the space we're playing in, the opportunity we're playing in, and people keep underestimating it. it. Keep People continuously underestimate what's involved in it. I remember one of the biggest challenges when it we went public. We had $7 million of revenue, which is pathetic when we went public. I was trying to convince people that we could get to twenty-five million in revenue. And people didn't believe that digitizing real estate was that big a business. But you stop and look at it, real estate in the world is worth a hundred and eighty trillion dollars, a hundred and eighty trillion dollars. Compare that to the value of every single public company in the world combined, that's ninety trillion. So commercial real estate generally is worth twice as much as all the public companies in the world combined it's a massive ac- asset class and then you think what are all the economic multipliers in real estate so i, I acquire a piece of land i get a I hire an architectural planning study uh, do a construction loan put a construction contract out there i get permanent financing i get a 10 year lease signed i get a loan on it i securitize that loan i default on the loan i flip the property i do build out i do you have about a 5 to 6x multiplier on the value of a real estate asset to the economic activity it drives in an intermediate timeframe. So ultimately, there's about a quadrillion dollars of economic activity that's occurring around real estate globally, and it was almost all offline and non-digital 20 years ago. And as it goes online, it's just a huge space. And so you can be a complete idiot and actually carve out a pretty decent living providing digital solutions in the real estate space. And I think we've had that consistent vision. The things we told people we were going to do back in 1987, we have consistently pursued those efforts for 30, 35 years, 33 years. And we've never really run the company thinking about what's happening next quarter or the following quarter. We always have sort of focused on what's happening in three years like what's happened with what the trends in three years. So the, our whole investment, we invested two or three billion into apartments.com. You know, that was not a popular thing to do in a one quarter, one year basis. Like a lot of our biggest investors said, are you nuts? What are you doing? Right. And but we just felt that multifamily is obviously in the early days of digital impact, internet marketing. It's been underinvested invested in a digital sense. And we just thought three years, that'll work great. And now I think our investors are happy with it. And actually, it's your fault, Willie. It's your fault. If anything goes wrong with a part cycle, like, because Willie, I was out working on the West Coast having just done the LoopNet deal. And my neighbor, like talk about obnoxious, my neighbor, Willie Walker, called me up at 4 a.m. to complain about some of CoStar's multifamily data. And I took the call at 4 a.m. and I wasn't smart enough just to hang up on him. And he complained about some vacancy rate numbers. I said, okay, I promise, Willie, I'll invest and try to improve that apartment data. $3 billion later, I think I've honored my 4 a.m. commitment to Willie Walker.
1: So and- I will only say that I think it's about $10 billion of market cap to CoStar since that comment. And we still pay every dollar we need to for our co-star licenses so i think you've got thank you. better, i think you've thank gotten the you. better end of that comment that 4 a.m phone call that i made to you uh, on the west coast so one quick thing before i move off of that andy i have always thought that you were trying to build the bloomberg of commercial real estate but what you just ran through says that it, it it's not really kind of sitting there saying it's data it, it's much more focused on the component parts of a real estate transaction than it is we want to be the information source to the commercial real estate space like Bloomberg is to the capital markets. I've never thought about it that way, but I'd always sat there and said, Andy's trying to build Bloomberg of the capital markets and not Andy wants to build a company that is basically helping support all the component parts of real estate. But what you just ran through and how you built the firm makes me think that Bloomberg hasn't been front and center since you have been so successful
2: at building CoStar. Uh, to be clear, I absolutely look up to Bloomberg and everything he's accomplished, everything he's done. I think it's absolutely mind-boggling. And I've tried to learn from everything he's done. I've tried to model a lot of the things he's done. I think some of the big differences, I mean, obviously it's about data, but it's not just about data. Data is really important, and data is providing data at the lowest possible cost and, and getting scale there is obviously pretty important. But community is critical, right? So last month we had, 45 million different people come into apartments.com. The community is potentially more important than the data and facilitating connections, right? And so because the community comes in there and brings in hundreds of billions of dollars of buying power, that then begets data. Then 45,000 different PMCs give us access to back-end accounting. That then gives us the quality of data that then brings the community back in. So it's It's connecting different communities of buyers and sellers through technology and the internet, and then also harvesting the relevant data. The other, another component though, is a weird way, like our our industry in a non-digital world, in an offline world, our industry is hobbled and super inefficient because we don't have standards of communication, standards, it's, it's a little bit like, If we had a railroad system in the United States where every county used a different gauge rail line and you had to take the trains on and off, the cargo on and off between counties to switch. So what I mean by that is allowing people to like when you look at acquiring an STR, half the value of us acquiring an STR is that we can put it in the same system that people are looking at multifamily and office and retail, industrial and it just makes it much easier to move the data around and make relative decisions in asset allocation between this category, and that category, evaluate a loan portfolio. So it's a lot of it is coming up with standards. And it's not just domestic standards, not just the United States, but it's also global standards. As you know, so much of the capital flow is cross-border, and you need to try to allow in essence, real estate commerce to flow more fluidly by giving less expensive access to community data and standards, interconnectivity.
1: So as you mentioned the standardization, that's a I think a good segue to talking about a number of the acquisitions you've done. And as we go through this, what I'm going to I want to hear about the acquisition, but I also want to hear about your view into that asset class right now, because if you think about it, you've got LoopNet gives you insight into office, and Apartments.com gives you insight into multifamily, and then the acquisition you just mentioned gives you insight into the hospitality space. So let's start on LoopNet in 2012. You bought it for $860 million. You really consolidated the space in doing that, and a little bit of this... um, of your comment as it relates to the gauge of the rails was exactly what bringing LoopNet into CoStar did. LoopNet's obviously been a fantastic acquisition for you. What are you seeing today in the office space through that data? And what's your outlook as it relates to office on the other side of the pandemic and, and the civil unrest that's going on in the country
2: today? Yeah. well, wow. That's a lot, lot in that. It's <laughs> yeah. a lot in that. So we, we only have four hours, right? Yeah. exactly. So, um, <laughs> 26 minutes and I got about 20 more questions for you. So let's plow through yeah. it quick. So in the office sector through LoopNet, you know, we bought LoopNet and it was really positioned as a super economy budget information system. What what I really saw in LoopNet that was much more interesting to us was the potential of the community or a marketplace, not a place where you found information, but a place where you could market to end users, investors directly. And when we acquired LoopNet, it probably had $30 million in revenue in advertising, say, on behalf of brokers to end users who might want to occupy their space. And it tended to be at low-end properties. It tended to be the gas station in Des Moines, Iowa. It wasn't really one Bryant or Vanderbilt place or whatever. And we really wanted to, we really felt that there was a market that commercial real estate should be marketed more broadly, something more sophisticated than the pathetic email lists of 500 that go out, you know, the little spam bots that go out in email. And it really should be a broad, accessible internet marketplace for people who can market to end users. That's worked. We've gone, we've probably increased our revenue on the marketing side fourfold, eightfold. And I think we're at the very beginning of a major renaissance there. We saw our search activity drop when the pandemic hit in whatever, March 10th, March 20th. Search activity dropped, and, it, and, the, and the scope of the drop in search activity in commercial real estate was equivalent to the, the drop you see at every Thanksgiving and every Christmas. It was probably like a 20% drop. It had a longer duration. It lasted about three weeks and then it shot up. It shot way up. So now we're at all times highs in traffic on people searching for office, industrial, retail space and investment opportunities. And for one simple reason, you get transaction volumes in leasing for office, industrial, retail go down whenever there's a disruption. It drops like 25% in the quarter immediately following disruption. But lease expirations do not respect pandemics or riots or anything. They just keep expiring. And leases expire. One lease expires every in commercial, not multifamily. One lease expires every seven minutes. Right. And while there's a lot of pontification about what's going to happen about, you know, we work or will people use less or will people work from home. Walker and Dunlop is going to likely continue to consume office space in Bethesda next year right and if the lease is expiring you got to renew it in about three months after the pandemic hits corporate America goes oh my god we've got this lease coming up we're going to be evicted if we don't sign another lease so nobody wants to get on an elevator with 12 brokers and go see 10 buildings right now so they're all searching online virtually and that's and and that Has we've seen an explosion of folks just basically shopping for real estate digitally after this whole thing happened. Now, to be clear, sales of properties, commercial properties, has done the normal 75% dislocation, 75% drop. But leasing actually goes up because of change of configurations of space.
1: And so are you bullish or bearish on office as an asset class post-pandemic?
2: Well, you know, having watched unemployment very carefully for many, many, many years as a key indicator of office demand, obviously this unemployment that we're experiencing right now is more focused on service, hospitality, leisure, entertainment, and that's less of an office driver, but the numbers are so scary in unemployment right now that they can't help you make you be a little concerned about what might happen. But we're only looking for a couple of point increase in vacancy rates and for a couple of reasons. One is half of all CFOs surveyed said that they are going to largely continue the same work in the workplace once the quarantine opens. Only a small percentage, like 15 percent, said there would be a substantive change to working at home. And also, I think that people are asking the question right now, what do the workers want to do? I don't mean to be harsh. I'm just being an economist people are asking the question what do workers want to do after the pandemic are they going to want to come to work well part of my answer would be well at a 20% unemployment rate the decision shifts more to the employer less to the employee and so if the company wants to have people in the office place and in the same culture or develop culture and face to face communication so communication easier to manage they're going to probably pull people back in the workplace tougher in a place like new york where of the workforce in New York takes public transportation and 25% spend more than an hour on public transportation, as opposed to Phoenix, where 4% takes public transportation and only 4% are on there for 60 minutes. So it'll be a mix, but two different drivers will happen. One is some more people work from home. Second driver is that some significant number of companies will go bankrupt. But I think an equally powerful driver is that forget 160 square feet per person and doubly forget 30 square feet per person that you got at WeWork. Like nobody, you would plant a victory garden in your backyard before you would volunteer to work in an office at 30 square feet per person. So I think you're you're going to get an expansion of the average square footage per person. And it's like really who wants to work on a subway car.
1: I just um, I want to see the victory garden. That's all I'm focused on. <laughs> um, so, uh, so let's transition let's transition from office to apartments. So you acquired apartments.com in 2014 for 585 million. I realize I had some minor role in that acquisition. I, I wish quite honestly that Walker and Dunlop had done it. And you've turned that into an incredible, I mean you came and spoke at our summer conference in Sun Valley a couple years ago and I and my sense in the room of all of the apartment owners were this guy is going to control my client, my tenant. Talk to me about two things. One, you mentioned in LoopNet the amount of activity that has gone online. My assumption is that the volumes on apartment.com right now, for all the exact same reasons you just said, are extremely high. And then second of all, since you have the data of where people are finding new apartments and leasing new apartments. What's your forward view on rents and the apartment business?
2: Yeah, sure. So obviously at the scale that apartments.com is at now, we had not seen a major disruption or economic cycle in this new sort of really massive digital marketplace for apartments online. So we weren't entirely sure what was going to happen when we got a dislocation like this. So we were running at about 1.4 million renters on a daily basis searching apartments.com before the quarantine hit 1.4 million a day. And the first three weeks of the quarantine, first month of quarantine, that dropped to about 1 million a day. So we had a pretty significant drop off. And then since then, as of the most current month, we've gone to to 2 million people a day. So from 1.4 million to 2 million. So we are, we're about 40% above the highest level we've ever been. We had 70, we had 45 million people in the last four weeks come and search for an apartment, which by the way, is roughly the total number of decision makers, folks who rent an apartment in the United States. We had about 45 million folks come to our site in the last 40 days looking for apartments. And that's up 10 million from the same time period last year. So, and I think that what's that mean? It's like, there's just a ton of churn going on. People are thinking about moving out of Washington, moving to Richmond. People can't stand their roommate. They used to not know their roommate, right? They would be at home five nights a week and they'd be there for eight hours. Now they're there 24 hours a day, seven days a week with a roommate they don't really know. And they're desperate to find another place, or they might be in, in a situation where their economic outlook has changed. They want to scale back. Maybe they want to be closer to family. All kinds of things going on. But I think there's a very high velocity of change happening right now. That's reflected in the searches. And you know, a couple things that couple things that stand out. You know, we've got a bunch of different sites. You know, it's not. It's also connected. We're spending about a quarter billion dollars this year on driving traffic to the site. So it's a little bit of that increase is the increase in marketing. Some of the other sites, as you know, we bought, we have a contract to acquire RentPath. Those sites have not grown at all. They're, they haven't grown in years. They're down various points. So there's a little bit of spending a quarter billion drives traffic to your site. One of the a couple of things that stand out in shopping behavior, and it's important. If, if people listen to one thing that's said here after they listen to what John Johnny Rice said, Before the pandemic, 6% of folks coming to Apartments.com use the the virtual tours, the Matterports, where you can walk through an apartment and tour it virtually. That went from 6% to 15%, but it's 15% against a bigger pool. So before the pandemic, 4 million renters would come to our site and virtually look at a, a unit through a video or through a Matterport. Now it's 11 million, 11 million. And also we can read through word mapping the millions and millions. We're not reading your email, Willie, but the, uh, we get millions and millions of emails going to our clients every day. And we can look for what words are emerging, what words are growing, what words are going away, and the questions that come into the leasing offices. So interestingly, on a typical day before the pandemic, there were 2,000 people asking, can I schedule a viewing of the apartment? There was nobody asking, do you have a video of the unit or a Matterport of the unit or a virtual tour? Now, 2,000 requests to view the unit on schedule a tour has dropped in half to 1,000. There's 12,000 people a day now saying, do you have a Matterport or a video? And this is something that blows my mind. I don't like to use the word "stupid" because that's a you know that's not a kind word. But my lord, like when you've got a very valuable commercial real estate asset—office, industrial, retail, multifamily—that needs to be leased in a time when people do not want to have a lot of contact. It is essential that you have photos of the interior space, Matterports, videos, and most people don't. Most people are marketing their commercial real estate like it's 1975 and it's not 1975. And the whole strategy of they'll see the interior when they come and meet my salesperson is not a good idea. We did a study with Kingsley last month, talked to 20,000 renters. 63% of the renters said that they would, they felt comfortable leasing an apartment based on just the video of the apartment or the matter report and talking to leasing agents. So People no longer feel they have to go to the community. They feel they can buy it like they buy on Amazon. They can buy shoes on Amazon. They can buy an apartment online.
1: Let me, let me jump in there for a second. I want to, because I want to move to other asset classes and I got a couple other things I want to talk about. But as it relates to renewal rates, we're seeing collections hold up extremely strong across the country. And we've got that data from our very significant loan portfolio and we're seeing collections in the you know 95% plus on A's and B's C's a little bit weaker than that but collections across the board are really good and yet the one of the big questions is how do rents hold up so your team has put forth a number of different things as it relates to some projections on asking rents in Vegas are going to fall off 11 or 12 percent, Orlando similarly has significant fall offs, yet the CoStar data over the last month has been that there's only been a 1 percent decline in asking rents across the country. What's Apartments.com seeing as it relates to what markets are holding up well and other ones that are falling off? Is it really that delineated between uh, Richmond, Virginia, which has you know, a solid employment base right now, the state government, and hasn't been hit that hard, and Vegas, which is all service-driven. Because the, when I went in and dug into your data a little bit, I did notice that actually asking rents had gone up by 20 basis points in Vegas during the month of May. And so as much as you guys are projecting Vegas down 11%, the actual renewals in May were actually slightly up year on year. So what are you guys seeing through apartments.com as it
2: relates to renewal rates? And so you have to factor in cyclicality. You have to factor in seasonality and also mixed change, right? So you have to make sure that you're dealing with a common unit type. So we're seeing all sorts of stuff. Now that data is sort of the most watched data from NHMC, whatever national housing council. Yeah. And I guess we're, looking at like 93%, 95% rent, 93% rent payment, just down a couple, 100, 200 basis points. So really remarkably quite good. And I think that that is, uh, that's really encouraging. But something I think you and I were talking about the other day is we have to keep an eye on that. And, you know, one of the things that I'm concerned about is, you have sort of a quadruple witching hour or a sing witching hour in August uh, because you have a lot of folks whose unemployment benefits expire. You have the supplemental unemployment benefits expiring. You have the stimulus check, uh, the $1,200 stimulus check becomes a memory. You also had two and a half months of the uh, payroll protection program evaporating. The payroll protection program is safekeeping about 30 million jobs. Half those people were never in danger of being laid off. But clearly when the payroll protection program expires and people achieve loan forgiveness in the next month or so, you're going to get some layoffs from that group. And so it's, you know, it's pretty important that there's a CARES Act, too, that deals with that reality that keeps people with the minimum amount of some formula to avoid a hard drop and a repeat of the Herbert Hoover kind of dislocation reaction. Because if you if you just let all those support and the other thing I worry about is I think people looked at first quarter earnings from corporate America and they thought that that was the answer to what was the pandemic's impact on corporate America. And it only had 10 days like the quarter was done by the time the quarantine came, the much more meaningful numbers are going to be the second quarter numbers reported in July and August. So you have a lot going on July and August, and it's important that that is managed properly in order to sustain those rent payments. Because if if the government and the Fed don't continue doing a good job, that could be an issue. Not to be a rosy. So on that,
1: so you just talked through four very important things. If there is an extension, what's your outlook for the end of 2020? And if there isn't an extension of those programs for whatever
2: reason. What's your outlook for the end of 2020? Well, it is really simply put, if the program is extended, vacancy rates in, if it's well managed and things go well, vacancy rates in multifamily might go up 7% to 8%, 8 8.5% in the five or six quarters that follow and rents may drop by from thirteen seventy five to twelve twenty five, a slight drop, which you know, all all things considered, is not terrible. If it is not extended and you do a hard landing, it could go from seven percent to eleven point five percent, or from thirteen seventy five down to one thousand fifty. Obviously, those are forecasts, and forecasts are only forecasts. You know, the difference between a a U recovery, a, a Nike swoosh, or a depression. Pretty, pretty important differences right now. We're seeing rents so far de diminimously impacted, right? It's not interesting. People write articles about it. Wow, rents are down 0.5%. So what? Down 0.5% is up 10% from four weeks ago, probably. We are seeing concessions climb. We're seeing concessions climb from 2% to 4%. We're seeing the four or five star properties have a tougher time than workforce housing. Obviously, workforce housing, there's no material change in rents. Now, remember that a 0.5% drop is actually more than a 0.5% drop because this time of year, we should be seeing a 2% increase. Right. So it's actually, you know, cyclically a problem. We're seeing a divergence between CBD properties and suburban properties. So 56% of the properties in urban are showing increasing vacancy, only 39% in suburban. And so CBD's dropping a little bit, is down two points, whereas suburban is unchanged. And then you hit Richmond, and when you look at Richmond, so Washington, D.C., if I index Washington, D.C. rents back to the beginning of the year... D.C. is down 0.5%, like 0.5, 50 basis points, right? Okay, not that bad. Richmond's up. Richmond is up 300 basis points. And we're seeing that same trend all over the country. So we're seeing urban higher quality properties, especially unstabilized new construction deliveries, which are at a peak those areas are having a slightly tougher time and the suburban and the secondary markets are getting better traffic. So, you know, we're seeing that trend, you know, the the way LA and Orange County is sort of migrating to Inland Empire. We're seeing, you know, you've got Prime Urban has got 8% of its inventory under construction right now. So it's got a lot of growth. Whereas suburban, prime suburban, rural is three to 4%. So it's less vulnerable. And then we're just seeing a significant increase in people searching outside their markets. So people from Cleveland and from New York or Vegas are increasingly searching in Austin or Raleigh, areas where job growth is a little stronger. So there's a lot of Market transition. I think probably also telecommuting, like the fact that everyone's in tele. Well, some people are in telecommuting right now. Is people are re- rethinking, you know, where they're going to commute to and from.
1: So I want to pivot from multi to hospitality, and then I want to get to ten x quickly, and then I want to call it a day. On hospitality, clearly the most troubled commercial real estate asset class out there. You own STR, which gives you rev par numbers. Those must be some pretty grim numbers today, sort of globally as it relates to hospitality space. No reason to kind of get into the detail on that as it relates to what RevPAR numbers are looking at. Although I will give one quick anecdote before I ask you to give your global view on hospitality and how it comes back or not, Andy. And that is that my family and I are going to Yellowstone this weekend. And I've always wanted to go and stay at the Amman Resort in Jackson. And so I looked on the website at the Amman, which has always had silly high prices. And I was expecting to see some discounted rates. And on their website, their rates were actually higher than what I'd remembered. So I said, there must be some mistake here. So I picked up the phone two days ago. I called the Amman Resort in Jackson and I said, you clearly have vacancy this weekend and you clearly haven't on your website revised your prices down to where they ought to be. Can I get a room and can I get it for a really cheeky price? And the extremely nice woman I spoke to said, well, Mr. Walker." Unfortunately, we're sold out on Friday and Saturday night, and we've actually raised our rates since the COVID crisis. I was flabbergasted. I said, good to be in Amman. But I guess that's a little counterintuitive to where I thought we'd be right now. Or is that just specific to the Ammans at the high end near a great national park, which is just sort of getting everyone going? Or actually, are the numbers better from a hospitality standpoint than one would think?
2: I would say that you're operating in a biased, highly unique set that probably is not reflective of the overall world. And when when I get reborn, I want to be reborn into your family, or I want to be Willie Walker's kid. Careful,
1: careful. People in glass houses, don't throw stones.
2: (laughs) Careful. I I know you. I looked at the booking data from the Amman, and I saw that you actually booked three suites. So the, uh, <laughs> nah, I'm just making that up. That's all completely fabricated. However, that's not the broader picture. And, you know, we are collecting data in 160 countries now. So, and we saw the data first in China. We saw the data just fall off a cliff, which sort of got, woke us up and, and we reacted immediately to a pretty bad picture that we knew eventually would hit the United States. But the luxury category, revenue per available room, in the luxury category is down ninety-four percent, right? There is no revenue in the luxury category. Economy, you know, workforce hospitality is only down forty-three percent. So luxury is devastated. 25% of all luxury in the world is closed. This is even open. You can't you can't get a room if you wanted to. So RevPAR is down 80% the worst it's ever been by far. You know, post 9 08, it was down 20%. 80% is unprecedented. It's cataclysmic. One of the strategies that empirically we can see, though, is that in a dislocation like this, hotels are better off not lowering their rate. They're better off taking the hit in occupancy and trying to hold the rate. So one of the things we see, and that's what you experienced, is, you know, they will, gosh, if I take... Um, ADR or average daily revenue price is only down 21%, whereas revenue per available room on a spike is down 90%. So it's more occupancy getting hit. But I've never been to that Amman in Jackson. I'd love to one day go. I've I camped there. I camped out there by that hot spring area. But the creek in a free campground, it was nice. It was beautiful. Well,
1: I'm sure if you called, given that you own uh, given that you own STR, they'd let you get a room. But they they, they clearly didn't want me. So let's talk for a moment about 10X. You, you just acquired 10X. It's an online platform for property sales. I sent you a text immediately and said, do I need to watch out over my shoulder? Because Walker Dunlop clearly has a multifamily investment sales platform and some exceptional brokers at W&D. What's the strategy behind that? Are you are you competing with your customers?
2: Absolutely not. We look at 10x as a sort of similar to everything else we've done, which is community, uh, huge, huge internet connected community, data analytics software, and then standardization. So obviously, when we're looking at potential double dip recession, we're looking at these unemployment numbers. We're looking at an economy that could be pretty negative. 10X has the added benefit of being a strong counter-cyclical play. I think they've helped dispose of about 25 billion of distressed assets through an auction format. They do negotiate a bit everything else. But as I look at that that platform, a critical element of clearing distressed assets in a you know arm's length transaction bid process is the number of people that show up to the auction, the number of people that show up to the event. And what we have in spades is community. We have nine nine to 10 million people each month that come to LoopNet and half of them are looking to buy something. And that traffics up as people look to buy distressed assets. And if I, you know, I've watched last year, the year before, I've watched properties that are occupied on 20-year leases, triple net by A credit tenants sell for an eight cap with two bidders. And you're like, the bond on that entity was trading for like three and you got real estate to back it up, and you had credit. So a critical element to clearing those transactions is a massive number of people. And as we, you know, we now are in a, uh, collecting data in 160 countries. We have clients in 80 countries. You know, we have a lot of business in Japan, China, Germany, United Kingdom, Spain, Germany, France. And what we typically see is half the capital is coming in from cross-border. It may be coming through a local seller, but By the end of the year, CoStar is in about 20-some languages, and we want to make sure that when someone's selling a hotel to be repurposed in San Diego next year, that you've got a massive audience, multinational audience in multiple languages that's there to bid. 100% of those transactions involve a broker. You can't be on the platform without having a broker. And nothing about what we're doing actually facilitates the brokerage process. You still have to talk the person into it. You still have to position it. You still have to price it. You have to do that art of getting the reserve low enough and the interest high enough and all that kind of stuff. But the software, I mean, we contemplate building the software ourselves because we have 500 software engineers and we basically just felt that the 10 years 14 years of experience building the software around the platforms it was so there's a lot into it there's a lot in it there's a lot of software there and it's not we think it would take us years to try to build that so technology is really relevant when you build a bidding platform either for an auction or for negotiate or a traditional process the other element is buyer database, researching buyers, and that's, again, a global market. So we're putting people in probably 20 or 30 cities, researchers in 20, 30 cities around the world. One of their core missions is to research who in Singapore is interested in buying U.S. real estate, who in Hong Kong is interested in buying U.S. real estate, who in Abu Dhabi is interested, and making sure we have great pooling the efforts of a 10X and a CoStar in a LoopNet to try to research who the potential buyers are for these assets turn that over to the brokers, turn that over to Walker Dunlop and make sure that they have the benefit of that. Whether or not they're using our our technology platform to to manage a sale, even if they're just doing it in a traditional offline process, we want to pool resources with 10X. And remember, we can also see when people come on to, people forget this, but when Amazon or Walmart or Facebook comes on to LoopNet, we can see who they are. Google Analytics tells us this user is Facebook. This user is Blackstone. This user is... like We tell who people are when they come on. They search and they tell us they're looking to buy hospitality in San Diego. No one else knows that. Like We can see that kind of stuff. And then we put that in the database back out to our brokerage clients. One of the things we want to do with 10x, though, is it strikes me that the 5% fee is not where things should be. We want to try to actually use the brokerage industry as our channel, work behind the scenes as we do with CoStar, we work behind the scenes and drive that pricing down through rebates back to the seller or to the brokerage firm and try to bring that way down so that the volume goes way up and it's a standardized platform. So we and it's fun. Up. It's just, if you're a nerd, it's just a fun thing to work on. And I am a little bit of a nerd.
1: Yeah. Well, I think about the two nerds back at the... Honors physics course, at a class in Princeton, New Jersey back in the 1980s, and I and I shudder to think about the intellectual capacity there. I was actually going to close by saying it's it's super evident, Andy. Why are you number 63 on the Forbes list of the 100 most innovative CEOs? And to those of us in the industry who use your data and your product every single day, it is a huge advantage to all of us to have you leading CoStar and have CoStar grow the degree it has. One quick point is that if you take the market cap of CBRE, JLL, and Walker and Dunlop and add them all together, we don't get to the market cap of CoStar. So to anybody in this industry who's sort of trying to figure out directionally where we're all headed, first of all, we all need to use CoStar more and more. And second of all, your leadership and insight into where the commercial real estate industry is going is unparalleled. And so I greatly thank you for joining me today. It's great to see you. If Christopher and Matthew want to go to Yellowstone with us this weekend, you can send them our way. I just want to say thank you for joining us. To everybody who's joined us today, for both John Rice at the beginning, as Andy said, I think what Johnny said, um, of all the stuff that Andy and I just talked about, what John talked about is the most important thing that we are all faced with today, and we must address these issues going forward. And Andy, thank you for being here. I have Jeff Blau from Related coming on next week to take all of the data that Andy talked about today and general stuff and bring it down to, if you will, ground zero, both figuratively and literally. And Andy's now gone to some wine glasses in the background. It's, it's, It's only 11.40 my time in the morning, so I'm not quite getting to wine glasses in the background. But Andy, thank you for joining me and have a great day. Well,
2: Willie, thank you for having me. But what I heard was that if I came on your webinar webcast, you usually send really nice bottles of wine to the folks you host. So, I am thrilled to be here for the conversation and also for the nice bottle of wine. So thank you for having me. And thank you for everyone that joined us. I appreciate the opportunity to chat with Willie and and, uh, have you all join us today. Thanks, Andy. Take care. Have a great one. You too.